a blood price. That's what the cross of Christ is. It's a price paid for you. The question is, what did God purchase in you? The power of resurrection three days later changes a lot. Three days can change a whole lot of things. For Jesus, it was for crown of thorns to the crown of life. And the blood price bought a field. Some, you might feel like today that when it comes to your life, that uh, the fruitfulness and the fertileness of your field isn't there spiritually. Well, you're in a good place because we're going to talk about taking care of your soul and taking advantage of what God is doing and being useful, really, in the kingdom of Christ. You have two stories. I hope you have both. One is a used-to-be story. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that in order for a man to enter into heaven, he has to be born from above. There has to be a resurrection story in your story um, where you were this and now you're this. You were blind, but now you see. You were dead, but now you live. And in the truth of Easter, the reason we make such a big deal about Easter is it's full of resurrection stories where funerals become festivals and cemeteries become celebrations. Amen? That's the power of the used-to-be story. And then the second story is a usefulness story. We're going to talk about both. How do you move from used to be to usefulness? And these stories are all through Scripture. There is a great one, one that Jesus himself said was likened unto himself in his death, burial, and resurrection. He called it the sign of Jonah. So turn to Jonah chapter 2. You're saying, what is, why is this an Easter text? Jonah chapter 2. I didn't make it an Easter text. Jesus made this an Easter text. We're going to look at Jonah 2, and we're going to look at Matthew 12, two passages. Last week, if you were here, we looked at Jonah chapter 1, and it was comedic, right? Jonah is told to go. He tells God no. He sets on a a ship headed the opposite direction. Go east. He goes west. He goes down, down, down into the belly of the ship, and then the storm happens, and this great uh, comedic event occurs where The captain, this pagan captain of the ship calls the people to pray. The pagan is doing what the prophet should be doing, calling people to prayer. But the prophet is doing what pagans do, praying, sleeping in the belly of the ship while it's praying time. And, of course, it moves on. They throw Jonah overboard, and they have a worship service on the deck of the ship, and they take the good news of God into Tarshish. In the water is when he prays. We talked about that at the last of last week, that When you hit rock bottom, God often allows you to hit rock bottom so you can discover that he is the rock at the bottom. Amen? We don't realize God is all we need many times till God is all we got. And you have, like me, probably had a number of rock bottom experiences. And those are the places where in those storms my roots went deeper. My understanding of God grew larger and my understanding of myself grew smaller. I saw myself in smaller ways. And so the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1 is Jonah running from God. Jonah chapter 2 is Jonah running to God. It's a beautiful chapter. We're going to take this week and next week to unpack it. There's no action in Jonah chapter 2. It's just prayer. At the end of chapter 3, he's now on the shore Sorry, at the end of chapter 2. And then he preaches, so he's running with God in Jonah Jonah chapter 2. This book is about God. It's about God 
being the God of second chances and third chances. And some of you are on your 30th chance, but he is faithful and he is patient and he is a God of second chances even for rebellious prophets. Jonah chapter three, he preaches one of the worst sermons in the history of sermons in verse four. And something crazy happens. People start reacting and responding. From the highest, the king, to the lowest, peasant, they all start wearing sackcloth. And even the animals are wearing sackcloth. And it's an incredible story. And like Elijah in, in, uh, in First Kings, he goes from Mount Carmel's great high mountaintop experience to the very next chapter. He's depressed. Elijah is sad. He's suicidal. Jonah follows in the steps of Elijah. In Jonah chapter 4, you see him running, which is in his character, against God. He's petulant. He goes from a preacher to a petulant person. And we're going to study all that. But Jonah chapter 2 is a text on how to respond in the shipwrecks of life. Now, the beauty of this book, the book of Jonah, is there is a hero in between every line, and it's not Jonah. Jonah's the anti-hero, but there's another hero. Matter of fact, I wanna point out three. We're gonna talk about Paul, we're gonna talk about Jesus, and we're gonna talk about you. You're in here. You're meant to see yourself in here. You're meant to laugh and then go, wait, I do that, right? You're meant to see the comedy of errors of your own life and say, wow, it's a wonder God even used me, but hey, God used Jonah, he can use me. That's what you're meant to do. This is meant to show you your story can be used. If Jonah's story can be used, your story can be used. So, this is brilliant, use it. <laughs> use your story. So let's first talk about Paul. Don't turn there, but in Acts chapter 27, Paul the apostle, this persecutor turned preacher, experienced the resurrection of Christ, and in Acts chapter 27, he has a shipwreck. And there's some parallels between when Paul prays for an open door and when Jonah. Jonah prays after he's thrown into the water, he comes to God and prays for safety. Paul prays for an opportunity, an open door before the shipwreck. So when he gets to the shipwreck, it's, it's a long passage there in, in Acts chapter 27. Uh, 200 plus people are on this ship and he basically is told by God that if they stay on the ship, even though they have lost the power of the rudder, the sails are hit hard by the wind and they're out of control. They're in a, they're in a jet stream, a current of water that is moving them up to an island. And matter of fact, they see an island and they make a run for it and they hit the reef and the boat gets destroyed and everybody is safe, right? So it's less about shipwrecks and more about storms. In the Jonah story, you don't see a shipwreck. In Paul's story, you see a shipwreck. But in both stories, you see a storm. Here's some points about that. As you're taking notes, this is in your listening guide. I want you first to think about this. Never see a storm as just a storm. It's a test. I wish there was an owner's manual that came with life. Oh, wait, there is. <laughs> and it says, attention, public service announcement, everything is a test. And you better study for those tests because when they come, it's more than a storm. It's a test either to show you what's in you or to show others what's in you. Either that or, which is never how we like to learn, we don't like to learn the other way, which is to show you what you don't know, right? When my kids don't do good on a test, I don't get too upset. You Sometimes I do. But I'm often thinking that that is 
the very thing that they'll probably never forget. That thing they missed on that test, they're gonna study it, they're gonna learn it. We make them look at their things they got wrong and I bet they'll never get it wrong again. That's how life is. Now you perfectionists in the room don't like to miss anything, but in your life it's probably even more important that your fear of failure is keeping you away from some of the greater truths of Christianity is that God uses failures. And matter of fact, your slip-ups become his step-ups. And your weakness, he is, say it with me, strong. And so you type A perfectionists like me, you need a lot of bananas to slip on in life. In his life, right, Paul took advantage of it. It was a test that became a testimony because Paul, unlike Jonah, Paul had the power of resurrection in his life, in his experience, in his heart. And in the power of resurrection, every storm is transformed from a test to a testimony. And all, while they're on the ship, while they're off the ship, while they're on the beach and they're, and they're hurt, he says, hey, God is doing something. God is active. God is here. God is faithful. God is trustworthy. It was a time to give a testimony. In resurrection, this is, this is a truth that's echoed in my heart all week. The worst thing is never the last thing. Say that with me. The worst thing is never the last thing. What's your worst thing right now? A bad marriage, bad money, a bad job, a bad health, a bad heart, a bad, an empty room, maybe there's loneliness. Is it something you're full of that's not God? An addiction, an entrapment, a codependency? What is it? What's your worst thing? And if it's the worst, if you are coming here today and you are at the end of your rope, let me tell you, with Jesus Christ walking out of a grave, the worst thing is never the last thing. He can take Jonah three days in the belly of a fish. He can take Lazarus four days in a tomb. He can take you 40 years in the bad a bad place, and he can resurrect you. You're never too late. It's never too late. Resurrection means that the worst thing is never. Everybody say never. Do you believe that, though? Some of you think it's at the end. You're, you'll always have that thing in your life. But the worst thing is never the last thing. It is amazing to me as I watch your lives and my life. I've seen so many of you. Storms make trees take deeper roots. And I've seen that in your life so often. Paul cries out to God for open doors because he had deep roots because of the other storms. He cries out to, to God with open doors for open doors when he's safe. Jonah, Jonah cries out to God for safety when he's at the bottom. You're meant to contrast. Which one are you going to be? Because they do. Storms make your, re, do, your roots go deep. It is encouraging for me to know that you could be, and we're going to end with this today, you could be the lighthouse in someone else's storms. When, when I see a, a believer with deeper roots who've been through other storms and something else happens and they're thinking, they'll, they'll say this to me and it just makes my heart grow larger. They'll say, wow, I'm going through something really tough. I wonder who this is for. I wonder how God's gonna use this. That's huge. Jonah's presence on the boat put the sailors at risk. Paul's presence on his boat brought blessing to the people, to the 227 souls that he saved. It is empowering to know and to hear and to feel that you, you don't tell your storm, you don't tell God how big your storm is, you tell your storm how big your God is. That's empowering. It's not about the size of you or your storm, 
or the whale. It's about the size of God. And Jonah is running from his calling to preach to a dangerous city called Nineveh. Paul is running to a dangerous city called Rome to preach. And he is telling his storm how big his God is. Mm, It's good stuff. So Jonah chapter 2. As we look at Jonah chapter 2, the hero I want you to see here is Paul and then another man, another shipwreck, another ship, all right? Another grave robbed. Here at the end of chapter one, uh, he's in a grave. A fish has been sent, appointed. In chapter two, verse one, we read this. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress. Why did he pray? He prayed because he was distressed. He sends off a, a flare prayer. Something's happening here, God, I need some help. We're gonna unpack this next week. And he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. You, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, Jonah chapter two, verse four, nevertheless, I will look again and again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but... You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness because they're really faithless. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Say that. Salvation is from the Lord. Now, even if you have, don't read the next verse. Even if you have to wait to hit rock bottom to pray, God is there. Jonah prays, God hears, God opens doors, and Jonah gets delivered. And what happens next is so slapstick, so goofy, that I wouldn't even bring it up if the Bible hadn't written it, right? Jonah gets delivered on the third day. Now, the third day in biblical frameworks is a a deliverance theme, Right? Jesus, three days. Jonah, three days. The third day is, a, is a, a, a rescue plan, and you would expect a dramatic rescue in the third day. So maybe a visitation from the angel Gabriel. Maybe a chariot of fire. Right? Swoop down, pick him up. Maybe a miraculous transportation. You see that in Bible? Not in this story. <laughs> Look at verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish... And it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. (laughs) Is it just me or is that a little bit more information than you really wanted there? It's like a sixth grader wrote it. All right. Jonah didn't get dropped off by an angel. (laughs) He had a protein spill. Tossed up his cookies. Lost his lunch. Launched the food shuttle. Barfalo Bill. He took a Ralph Ralph over the commodophone. He's chewing backwards. Riding the... uh, Puka go around. He took a ride on the regurgitron. You're meant to laugh. Jonah ends up on the shore. It's not a tragic figure uh, covered with suffering. He's not a heroic figure covered with glory. He's a ridiculous figure covered with shrimp cocktail and tuna tartare. The most basic way you can divide every story 
from the time of the Greeks, even before, before the Greeks, they would talk about two stories, either comedy or tragedy. A tragedy is meant to hurt, meant to, you know, love loses, life loses, hope loses, everything loses. It's meant to make you hurt. And I, I, I don't like those stories. Have you noticed when it comes to TV and movies, they're very, very, very rare. And the ones that you think of, the My Girls, remember that movie? The My Girl stories? Uh, you, you don't watch them twice, right? See, that's tragedy. Comedies, all other movies, all other stories are comedies. Even the romantic ones, even the adventure ones, even the Braveheart epic adventure ones, they're, they're comedies at some level because love wins, joy wins, hope wins. Jonah is a comedy. Jonah keeps going down and then... When he prays, funny things, uh, funny things have been happening and funny or things happen even after he prays. I told you in chapter one, the Dr. Seuss of chapter one is, could you, would you go to preach? Could you, would you go to reach the people of Assyria for you fit my criteria? And Jonah says to the Lord, I would not go there in a boat. I would not go there in a float. I would not go there in a gale. I will not go there in a well. I do not like the people there. If they all died, I would not care. I will not go to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea. So top, talk, stop this talk and let me be. And God takes up the challenge. Jonah ought to be the hero in this story. But instead, it's a pagan ship captain and a whale that's the hero in this story. God is the hero in this story. God says, go east, he goes west. A prophet who ought to know better thinks he can outrun God and a ship to Tarshish using God's own wind. I mean, <laughs> it's funny. A Gentile pagan ship captain acts like a prophet. He calls the people to pray and a prophet acts like a pagan. He's praying, he's sleeping when it's prayer time. These men, these sailors who are not known in this day and age for piety get converted and bring the gospel to Tarshish. Jonah thinks he's gonna drown and so God sends a fish like a Uber cab <laughs> that picks him up like an enterprise car rental and he takes him to where he wants to be. You, you, would, you would expect something else but what you get and in case you didn't see it as a comedy, the writer throws in, so you don't miss it, a regurgitation scene, right? Human rebellion, human stubbornness are not problems for God. God laughs at them. God laughs at the grave. God laughs at the death. God laughs at stubbornness. God laughs at it all. One day, one day we will understand that joy wins, Jonah is a joy book. It is, a, it is comic in the most sublime, most wonderful way of that word. It is comic in the most wonderful sense of the word comic because there is another character in between every line of this book. And I want to show it to you. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Let me show you Jonah and Jesus. You get another storm. It's death. You get another grave robbed. The grave was robbed of Jonah's body and the grave is robbed of Jesus's body. Jonah and Jesus are meant to be compared. Jonah is from a town called Gath-Hefer, which is right next door to Galilee. There will be another prophet who will come from Nazareth, just a, a rock's throw from where Jonah's from. 
And he will also be on a boat at one time and he will fall asleep on that boat. And a storm will come up on that boat while this prophet's there and he will stand up, speak to the storm and the storm will calm. In another story, he will walk on water during that storm and calm it. Jonah's name means the dove, which means beloved one. There's another one, another prophet, who will go down into water. And when he comes up out of water, a dove will descend on him. And there will be a voice of the Father calling out of heaven, say, this is my beloved son. Jesus, towards the end of his life, says these things. This is, this is when it's getting rather hot. We're going to start in verse 38 of Matthew 12, but... Matthew 12, verse 22 through 29, Jesus is casting out demon, demons from people and they say to him, you're doing that because of the power of Satan. And, and, and Jesus just says, are you guys thick-headed? Why would Satan cast out his own people? That makes no sense, you're crazy. And he says at the end of that little section, he says, I cast out demons because I wanna show you that there isn't a single spiritual force of darkness that I don't have power over. There's nothing physical or spiritual that I'm not in charge of. You should get this and you don't. You're clueless. And they show their cluelessness. In verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we wanna see a sign from you. What? What has he been doing for three years? This is towards the end of his life. He's been showing that he's, showing signs of controlling nature and controlling demons and controlling disease. He has the power of creation. He can turn water into wine. What are they? they? First Corinthians chapter one said that one of the prideful plagues on Israel's heart is that Jews demand a sign. And it's something common in the old and the new. They want a sign. It's them saying, we don't believe you. So prove yourself. And he does another thing. And it says, not enough. Prove yourself. Feed 20,000 people. All right, you feed 20,000 people. For a hat trick, he walks on water to show who he is. They still say, we don't, we don't believe. Some of the scribes say, show us a sign. He answered, you can, you can almost hear the, the angst here. An evil, <clears throat> he says, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. See, Jonah's rescue by a fish was a sign of, of the power of God. Jonah's rescue was a sign that his message was from God. He had experienced in the belly of the dagadol, the, the great fish in Hebrew, dagadol, he had experienced in that fish death, burial, and resurrection, just like Jesus is about to. He says, all you need is resurrection. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so, verse 40, will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Resurrection is the only sign. In Acts chapter one, verse to Acts chapter seven, all the sermons, Peter's first sermon and in Acts chapter two focuses on the resurrection. Those first seven chapters, Focus on the resurrection. Focus on the resurrection. And the resurrection stories about Jesus and about themselves. And thousands come to faith in Christ. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with just this generation at the judgment. In other words, these people who all they had, all they saw, is the worst sermon ever preached in all the Bible. Jonah says, 40 days and you're going to be judged. That's all he says. 40 days and you're gonna be destroyed. 
There's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of encouragement, edification, nothing. Jonah just says, 40 days, you're gonna be destroyed. And thousands come to faith in God through that simple little message. The men of Nineveh, who that's all they got, they're gonna stand up in the day of judgment and they're gonna condemn that generation because they repented at the awful, that's, I'm adding that in there, <laughs> at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone, something greater than Jonah's here. He preached wrath. I'm coming preaching love and grace. I, Jesus is greater than, than Jonah in his person. Jonah's a mere man. Jesus is the God man. Jonah is greater than, Jesus is greater than Jonah in his obedience. Jonah is disobedient and requires chastisement. Jesus was perfect in every way without sin. Jesus is greater than Jonah in his scope. Jonah came to one city. Jesus goes to the ethnicities of the world, to the nations, all peoples, great and small, and he shares his love in people of all tribes and all languages, right? The book of Revelation will come and they will worship him. His scope is much greater and Jesus is greater in his love. Jonah had no love. That's why his closed doors he couldn't see. Jesus had great love. For God so loved the world. That's big. So, so that's what you have here. But it's not enough for many people. And God says, that's all you're getting. I'm amazed at the stubbornness of the human heart to believe. Montgomery, Pastor James Montgomery Boyce once said, I sometimes say that even if God rearranged the very stars of heaven to read, Jesus is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That if that was in the stars, that people would look up, scratch their head and say, isn't that unusual? I wonder how the stars got in that order. What a coincidence. People are stubborn in their unbelief. So Jesus criticized their request. Here's a couple of applications and implications. You ready? Just like a storm is never just a storm. It's a test. A grave is never just a grave. It is a transition. If you lost this last year a loved one in Christ, someone who was a believer, you are gonna see them again. Their story just begun when they died. They got through the preface of the book and when they died, they went to heaven and they're in chapter one now. They're in the presence of God perfectly, permanently. They saw through a glass dimly. Now they see him clearly face to face. No, never see a grave as just a grave because in the power of resurrection, every believer's grave is a transition to true, full life, not a termination. It is not a period, it's an ellipsis. It's a dot, dot, dot. Every suffering, every storm, every heartache, every bandaged arm and bandaged heart is a dot, dot, dot. Because in the power of resurrection, resurrection means to live as Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right now, you have, if, as you are, if you are a believer in Jesus, you have the power of resurrection right now. And to live as Christ and to die is much gain. No, it is amazing. It is amazing that earth's saddest day and its worst day were just three days apart. It's amazing what can happen in three days. Some of you feel like you're at the end. It's the worst. The worst is never the last. In three days, imagine what could change in your marriage that is dead. It's been dead for years. Your pocketbook that is so deep, credit cards so high, 
T cells and cancer cells so high, it's too late. God laughs at death. He laughs at the grave. You do not realize his power. So often we need to enlarge our view of God or shrink us, shrink our view of ourselves. Because honestly, if you just look at you, you're looking too small. If you say, and that's gonna be our final point, if you say it's all about me, and just come and, and, and rescue me from this because of the pain, you're short-circuiting, short-sheeting what God wants to do. He wants to do something through you. Three days can change everything. It is encouraging to know that death could not hold him down. It is empowering to see what you, in the power of resurrection, will live for when you know you will live forever. Chance out there in the baptism? That's his resurrection story. He came to an understanding of what it means to live forever. If you're gonna live forever, why are you living for the things that you're living for? If you, live, if you know in the power of resurrection you're gonna live forever, it changes your perspective. You get an eternal perspective. Oh, that we would have an eternal perspective. We would not care about the things that we care about. What will you live for? Knowing you will live forever, what will you live for? Let me give you an answer. That leads to this last point. I wanna talk about you being the hero in the story of Jonah. There is another ship in another storm, another grave robbed. If you're in Christ, your grave has been robbed. And there is another resurrection story. And it's not Jonah's, and it's not Jesus, but you for your loved ones, for your friends, for your coworkers, for the strangers that you meet that are never coincidences. Your paths cross when the trail of your life crosses with somebody outside of the faith. That is a chance, a divine moment to have a resurrection story told because truly a story is never just a story. Amen? Story is a tool. Now don't take my word for it. Look at, look at Paul's writings to 2 Corinthians 1. Don't turn there. Look on the screen. Here's what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. This is in the introduction of this second letter. The God of all comforts. Stop. Do you believe that God has the power to comfort you in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your anxiety, in the middle of your fear of rejection, in the middle of your fear of failure, that he can take your shame and he can comfort you. He's like a salve and he can take all the, the things that you say, my life was not going according to plan. Where is it? Go? Why am I? Go? And you feel the awareness of your own finiteness, the awareness of your own fatigue. You're in fear. Can God comfort you in all of that? What's your answer? Yes? Okay, if that's the truth and it's about you, it's too small. It is the truth that God can comfort. But the wet question is why? Keep reading. He's the God of all comforts who comforts us in all of our affliction. Now, do you see the very next word? What's the word after affliction? So. In Greek, that means so. <laughs> it means purpose. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. With all the storms and all your stories, if some of you are going through something rough, I guarantee you there's a couple, a dozen other stories of people like Jonah who went through it and maybe it was quite comedic how they, how they got to the end of themselves. Maybe within this room are stories of people who didn't do it quite well. They stumbled, they failed, they fumbled. 
but they are stories of God's power to bring resurrection. And in this room are stories that you need to hear, but so few of us are speaking up. We have a used to be story, but we don't have usefulness story. They haven't, we haven't chronicled your story so that church leaders can come and use them. See, story is never just a story. You take your story as a tool and you hone it and you craft it. It's one of the most basic things of disciple making. We take what you were like BC, before Christ. We, we talk about the cross and the great exchange in your life and you learn to talk about before Christ and then the cross, exchanging where you gave him your sin and Jesus gave you his righteousness. You gave him your unrighteousness and he gave you his righteousness. If you don't have that story, today can be a day where you get that story, where you know he wants to take off of you your sin and shame and give to you his glory, his righteousness. And at that point, things changed. And so you go from BC to AD. You go from before Christ to in the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, when you became a follower of God, that story needs to be honed. Put it on social media. Put it in a letter. Email it. Mail it. Send it on uh, Facebook Live. Do something to get that story out there. Come with me. Come with one of our pastors. Talk to your home group leader. Say, I need to hone my story because I guarantee you in my life, I've been rather comedic as a Jonah figure where the smoothest gospel presentations haven't led anybody to Jesus, but then I'll stumble through it and I'll just tell my story. I was blind, I was an alcoholic, I was enslaved to lust, I was living for me, I was extremely arrogant, I thought I was the king of the universe and God put me in a well of the fear of failure. He put me in a well of the fear of rejection and under that approval addiction, I got low and when I hit rock bottom, Someone shared with me that God is the rock at the bottom. And I came to faith in Christ. And when that happened, it changed everything. I went from being hungry for parties and for immorality to being hungry for great things, for the right taste, for the right appetites. I wanted my tongue to not cuss. I wanted my tongue to praise. And no one even had to tell me that. No one had to tell me to come to a worship service and sing praise songs. You couldn't shut me up. No one had to tell me to come sit under Bible studies because you couldn't shut me out. I was gonna be there. No one told me because Jesus had changed me. Tell your story. Share it over meals. Tell it in times of crisis. In the power of resurrection, listen, I love this language. In the power of resurrection, every used-to-be trail becomes a usefulness tale. Your deliverance becomes your ministry, your mess, your mess becomes your ministry. What God got you out of, your used-to-be trail, where you used to be walking, those, those places of sin and struggle and bondage, those places of death, those places of shame, those places that you hid from, are now the glory of Christ resurrected. They're useful. Resurrection means today that there are multiple opportunities, and I pray that one of those is today that God gives you to reinvent and reinvest yourself. Resurrection means that God is giving you that chance right now to reinvent and resurrect and reinvest you. It's huge. And how's he gonna do it? How does he do it? He rescues you to be rescuers. 
He transforms you to be a transformer. He comforts you. The God of all comfort comforts you to be a comforter. That's how he does it. It's so encouraging. So encouraging to know that God will not waste. Hear me. Hear me if you're suffering today. God will not waste one millisecond of your suffering. He won't waste one tear, one headache, one heartache. He will not waste one millisecond of your suffering, but instead he will recycle your pain and use it to benefit others. Well, then you think, well, I know I need it for me and me, me. You're too small in your thinking. This world is not about you. Your pain is not about you. Your pain is teaching you, cutting out ruts in the riverbed of your life to, so that you can be a river. Pain is carving out a river to somebody else. Everything you went through, everything you're about to go through has purpose. That's the God of sovereignty that I believe. If I, get a, if, if I get a call that one of my children or one of my loved ones or one of my family has died, don't come to me and say, it's a cosmic accident, Chris. Things just happen. No, I want you to tell me that God's in control and he's gonna take full advantage of it and he's gonna glorify himself through the agony of my life. Tell me that, because that's what people wanna hear. They don't wanna hear a prosperity gospel. I know in their heart and in their flesh they do, but in the deep places of their soul, the prosperity gospel is too small. Is there good news of prosperity? Absolutely. But all those verses of prosperity point to the afterlife. Because a grave is not a grave. Prosperity now is when God uses you. That's your prosperity. It is encouraging to know that. And it is empowering to see God cross your path with the very people that need to hear your story. In between the services, a young lady came up to me to talk with me. Her story and my story were perfect. They crossed perfect. I was talking with Charles Bean last week. Our stories crossed perfect. It's empowering to know and to see the providence and the sovereignty of God to cross your path with the very people who need to hear his faithfulness to rescue. And if you shut up your mouth and if you stutter in that story, you have been one that has aborted what God has wanted to do, the baby he has wanted to birth. I know that's a harsh picture there, but that's what I see every time people don't speak up, don't get out there, aren't known, are agro agoraphobic, they won't leave their house, they never have anybody over their house, they're not friendly, they're not engaged, they're not looking for who can they can tell their story for. We set up opportunities online and no one takes advantage of it, and I think we're, we're, we're aborting the babies that God wants to birth. We're stopping his resurrection, stories that he wants to create. Jonah has a story to tell. So he goes to Nineveh, and that's a, Nineveh is the clear alternative to becoming a living sushi bar. So he gets puked up on the shore. He preaches a message, and for many, it is the lamest message in all the Bible. Look at it, Jonah 3, verse 4, last verse. Jonah 3, verse 4, look at it. And Jonah began to go, verse 4, through the city, one day's walk. It took three days to go through it. It's about the size of San Antonio. And they called a fast and put, verse four, he, he cried out and said, yet, here's his sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is maybe the worst sermon of all time. But as I tell young preachers, if you can't preach well, just don't preach long. All right, there you go. It's a sermon in a sermon. 
There's no mention of God, repentance, or mercy. There's no illustration. There's no application. There's no edification. Jonah is putting no effort into this at all. He's just phoning it in. Hey, this is what we need. But the strangest thing happens. The people, verse five, of Nineveh believed on God and they called a fast and they put sackcloth on from the greatest to the least of them, from the king to the pauper. Everybody put on sackcloth in great repentance. Even the animals had sackcloth on. I don't know if that's the case, but. Which tells us that our adequacy or lack of adequacy is never the issue when God opens a door, never. I know your strength is small, God says, and I still wanna use you. Matter of fact, (laughs) the weaker you are, the greater the glory I get. So you think you're low and weak and you're too deep in it and you're, 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 you're smelling. Jonah smelled and it was actually part of how God used his story. How did the people, how were they affected? The people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and seeing Jonah's resurrection. The first time the people of of the New Testament heard the first Christian sermon of Peter, 3,000 people were repented and were baptized. The sign of Jonah consists of his resurrection from the fish's belly and it points to the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Right now, there is an empty tomb. And there is a body of Christ called his church that should be full of his spirit. And the reason that many people today doubt the empty tomb is because they doubt that our lives are full. Let me say it this way. We as the body of Christ should be the modern evidence that Jesus is alive by the proof of us being full of his spirit, controlled by his spirit, speaking spiritual words, thinking spiritual thoughts, loving spiritual things. That is proof that the spirit is alive in us. And that's part of your resurrection story. Little boy in a Bible study class, children's ministry class, they were studying Jonah and he said, teacher said, well, what did y'all learn about the story of Jonah? What do you take home? And the little boy said, I learned that people make whales sick. (laughs) We can learn a lot by the message of Jonah. And part of it is we're rather funny. I don't think it makes God sick. It makes the whale sick. It might make your family sick. It might make your husband, your wife sick to be married to you. But in resurrection power, God can use you because God laughs at all the problems we have because he knows the answer's there. He's already fixed it. He's already solved it. Joy wins. The power is in the truth that convicts. The early church used to meet in uh, not cathedrals. The early church, because of persecution, used to meet in catacombs. You know what a catacomb is? Catacomb is an underground burial place. We started this message with the skit about the potter's field. Do you know what that was? I'm assuming maybe a little too much. That is the field when Judas Iscariot sold for blood money Jesus into the hands of the Romans and the Sanhedrin. He he didn't want the money. He throws it at the feet of the Sanhedrin. They go, somebody goes and buys the field called the potter's field, and it was a cursed land. They turned it into a cemetery because nothing would grow there, according to the story. Um, The early church met not out 
in cemeteries, because that was too public, they would go underground and they would meet. The first art inspired by Jesus wasn't painted on great cathedral walls or painted on impressive frescoes, right? The first pictures of the life of Jesus were chiseled, scraped in the rock walls of tombs, of catacombs. And we can see those to this day. You can go and you can look at the earliest pictures carved and etched and uh, drawn in hidden catacombs. And the Old Testament figure, listen to this, true story. The Old Testament figure pictured more on those walls. Old Testament figure pictured on those walls of those catacombs more than Abraham, more than Moses, more than Elijah. The most often drawn picture is that of Jonah. Why? Because the early church got the joke. Joy wins. And the turning point in the story comes because Jonah turns to God in prayer. He is running from God, then he ran to God. He turns to God because he has nowhere else to turn. I hope that you don't have to wait till then in your life, but God is not proud. God is not proud. He accepts him, even though he is looking to God as a last resort, God will take it. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Let's pray.